These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. So, internal to Annie's own mind, mm. we see before they even arrive at the bell, Annie is remembering her experience at the mercy of Seth. And at first it's confusing why that's coming up now. The story explains it because it's referring to the rumors of the giant tiger, which we know is a real thing because we know Prow and Miguel are in the area. And that's the impetus for Seth coming up. But the actual topic juxtaposed against the rest of the chapter, I was turning it over in my head and wondering if there was a specific additional meaning being alluded to here. We talked a great deal about her encounter with Seth back in the previous book. But up till now, I wasn't sure if I understood how Seth's offer might have felt something akin to a rape threat. I wanted to put this question to you, and I also took some time to ask Maureen about this as well, given her familiarity with the subject material and her own experiences being a woman and having to deal with this in her own life. The idea of the transformation into a Wendigo being symbolically representative of the ultimate loss of bodily autonomy, how part of her would die and she would never be the same afterwards. And the fact that Seth frames it as a gift, it feels like the kind of narrative that is endemic of rape culture. I don't like bringing this up, but like the argument that men will make as an excuse for rape, where they say she should feel lucky that I thought she was worth fucking at all. I don't like necessarily interrogating that too far because it involves diving into a diseased mindset that makes me feel kind of icky just even talking about. But as we wonder if Annie is in fact going to confront him again as the way the story alludes might happen, It makes us wonder if she will get the closure she may need in this regard, feeling helpless at his hands. But it also caused me to want your feedback on how this moment feels to you in hindsight. And even if my supposition in this regard doesn't really feel cogent to you, if that even matters, if the way it makes Annie feel is similar to how someone would feel having someone else decide her fate. Mm. It's difficult for me to offer a counter argument to the moment of Seth's offer being analogous to the threat of rape without inadvertently sounding as if I'm echoing the framing that you are 
proposing Seth is providing for this scenario, and I believe like there's a lot of meat to that. I could say that Seth provides Annie with the free choice of accepting what he describes as liberation from her old existence, and when she ultimately chooses no, he doesn't force her to accept the gift anyway, but expresses his supposition that she will live to regret what she gave up, which, like, in this context, does also carry that same, like... Mm. I was trying to do something nice for you. Yeah, you're not even that hot anyway, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the language of a rapist can work to make their potential victim feel as if they have more agency than they actually do. Mm. Seth is a physically threatening presence, and when Annie thinks of escape, he literally tells her in a soft but unmistakably firm tone, no escape. It's not necessarily what I took away from the encounter, at least in the moment and on subsequent rereadings, as the emphasis of the choice between the joy and pain of human attachments and embracing a new mode of existence that may or may not be a reflection of Annie's and many people's potentially true natural impulses was and remains centre stage of the conversation that's being held in that key scene. But however you slice it, the way that Seth forces her to confront this destabilising question Perhaps this is what he is referring to, that Annie could not escape, while he still does not sort of force her to turn anyway. He is forcing her to make this choice, that she can't fight her way out of it and escape, and Mm. makes her choice anyway. It's, you are going to have to do what I am pushing onto you, choose That right there is an intimate and personal space of Annie's that Seth insisted himself upon. It is a violation, and just because it was not necessarily of a literally sexual nature does not mean that Annie doesn't carry the experience with her in some way. It's complicated because Seth forces this violation on Thomas as well. Mm. And yet it doesn't feel like it could potentially have the same sexual connotations. That could just be a limitation of my own mindset. But obviously, as we've discussed in the past of how Seth is emblematic of Dracula in some Mm. ways, which Mm -hmm. the vampire definitely has significant sexual connotations built into it. 100%. But at the same time, part of the conversation that I ended up having with Maureen is a question of how much does Seth actually care about her as a person, or is she purely cattle, or even an insect to him? Like, he offers the choice, but does he actually care about what choice she makes. Or alternatively, was it ever actually a true choice? Seth chose to honor it, true. But he might not have done it out of any kind of respect for her as a sentient being. And the answer to that, we can't necessarily know for certain. We can only... We can make Mm. arguments for either way based on Mm. the evidence that is provided to us. Because Seth is deliberately constructed as a sort of impenetrable and unknowable figure at this stage of the story. 
and not to mention that, but also kind of an apex predator. Mm. And, you know, that word is a very loaded word, mm. and that's not a mistake and not incorrect. So that was something that Maureen brought up as well, is that introducing the word rape into any context is a loaded word and mm. forces people to like engage with that word above and beyond any symbolism or emotional resonance of the situation. I guess part of the reason why the idea came to mind here is because of the overall sexually charged nature of this chapter and the next as sort of my own brain sort of trying to figure out how these ideas may or may not fit together. Mm. Or even not even just the sexual aspects of it, because there are definitely people that would rightly argue that rape is about power and not about sex. Yes. But Abigail's experience going into the Diamond Bell is in some ways also more about power this, than it's about sex. This is the thorny part of what Abigail was planning to do, mm. because it is something... And I don't really have an answer to this. So this is sort of like an expression of something unresolved to me mm -hmm. where like I've absolutely gone into the motivation of her going into here. So I don't have some like, oh, this is completely out of character. No, we've mm -hmm. explored that. But something that is incumbent with this is that there is a degree of hypocrisy mm. in her saying, I don't hold to the idea that someone can have control over someone else and then her going in and saying i have money i have the say here bring me your selection of wares you know yes she would not be going in there to like mistreat anyone but still, yeah. the the experience of like putting the money down on the counter mm. and symbolically saying, I now own a part of your time and yes. by extension, your bodies. Yes, that feels hypocritical to mm. who we know Abigail to be and why she even feels this twisted and conflicted and on edge mm -hmm. in proximity to this place. But that's also kind of a representation of how out of control she is right now she I think is so she is deep in the middle of her own chaos to the yes. point where it's difficult to even be true to her own rock solid internal motivations mm. because she can't completely decide on a course of action and it requires the outside force of mm. annie to sort of come back from the edge from that where I think it, you're it, right there, yeah. It's an ultimate expression of freedom, and in some ways, like, saying, I can choose to be just as bad as men if I want to be. Hmm, yeah. So, even though it doesn't make sense with her moral compass, it's playing into the off-kilter aspect mm. of one of the other things that she cares about more than anything else. And the fact that it's careening around like mm. this just yes. shows how off-kilter she is. She's leaning towards her impulses and kind of in this moment being driven by id. 
what that means is that sometimes when you lean into it a lot because you want to consciously or subconsciously kick against the people saying no you can't be this part of you that you value so much you can overcompensate and you feed so much of the id that you lose that voice of the other parts of yourself that balance it. Rather like Joy trying to maintain control over every aspect of Riley's life and not let sadness in. By the end of it, it feels much more like the ego wins out, where she's able to sort of balance it, where she's still out here and she's still able to, as we can see by the end of the night, her and Harry have had a lot to drink, they've had conversations, so they have still cut loose to a certain extent, but she didn't go over the edge of where her impulses were leading, because mm-hmm. sometimes even within ourselves and even amongst people who we love and care about, their impulses can lead to bad decisions. Self-destructive, yeah. yes. And this would be a destruction of the self, I think. Mm. Before we continue on to weightier subjects, I do want to briefly return to the discussion of Abigail choosing to partake in the commerce of the Diamond Bell. I'd like to stress that when Toby referred to her as a hypocrite, that was not a judgment regarding her choice. Merely, as we said, it went counter to her own values. There is absolutely nothing wrong with Abby or Raven wanting to pay for services rendered. I got a little bit into discussions of sex work last time, and given the facts and evidence, this felt like a place fairly akin to, say, Nandy's brothel in episode 13 of Firefly. With the absence of the Fisher family, it appeared to be a fairly progressive place that not only was looking after its employees, but didn't bat an eye at having either male prostitutes or non-heterosexual clientele. That makes it stand out, honestly. It even said something about the situation that Florence seemed disappointed that Abby chose not to follow through on her earlier desires. After all, they still got the gold one way or another, why should she care? This is just supposition on my part, but I get the feeling like Abby might have been the most interesting person to walk through their doors in a long while. The only thing that does matter is motivation, something Annie made very clear in her argument. What mattered was not what Abby was doing, but why she was doing it. We've already talked about Chapter 23 a lot in terms of some of the intimate aspects of these two sexual encounters, and it's a credit to the details that Alex chooses to share and the inestimable acting of our three voice actors that make this chapter as potent and powerful and intimate as it is. But I wanted to look at aspects of our two pairings a little closer. You and I have been alluding to this eventual connection between Harry and Abigail for months now at this point. All the little pieces of subtext that clearly seemed that it was going to lead up to a final culmination of the will they or won't they. But one of the things that stands out here is that all of this is happening through Harry's point of view. As mentioned earlier, we haven't seen Abigail narrate anything from her experience in a while. So we're behind Harry's eyes 
as she's thinking to herself, am I going to do this? Is this a good idea? I really want to, but I'm drunk and maybe she doesn't want to. Like it almost doesn't happen at all. And then things spiral out of control anyway in the best possible way. Like not in the way they were spiraling out of control in the Diamond Bell. It's just this intimate moment happens even though it seems like for a moment it's not going to. The point is, with everything else that we've seen, the fact that this moment happens at all makes sense. It not just makes sense, but it feels okay. Since I know Alex is about to chase me around with a bit of wood for using a vague word, let me elaborate. Will they or won't they is a huge super trope in media most often made use of in serialized fiction, and occasionally with movies, particularly those with sequels. Two people with great chemistry or other exciting interpersonal dynamic that leads into a growing attraction to each other. And the longer it goes on without being fulfilled one way or the other, the more frustrating it can be. You can all toss a penny in the jar if you are familiar with the pairings of Danny Kincannon and C.J. Craig, or Josh Lyman and Donna Moss. Some shows are built out of this trope, with a central pair being the focus of some kind of regular shared activity. Often this is solving crimes, like Bones, or Lucifer, or Castle, which I have been watching a lot of recently. It happens so often that fans expect that any duo that has chemistry should eventually bone down. For an example of how this can get out of control, take a look at Sarah Z's video on the John Locke conspiracy. Link in the show notes, by the way. For serialized fiction, this unresolved sexual intention, also called UST, can be especially frustrating. Like everything else, media is capitalism. If the unresolved relationship is a big component of why you tune in every episode, then writers and creators feel justified to milk that lack of resolution as long as possible to keep people watching. And when you're talking about network television, that can mean over a hundred episodes of flirting and fighting, held gazes and intimate moments being killed by interruptions, neither person willing to admit how they feel, and finally figure out if a romance is going to work out or not. That's honestly the best face that I can put on this idea. That a lot of writers feel like they need to keep the drama without resolution, because once it's resolved, they no longer have that draw to get people to buy the next book or watch the next episode. A worse way to put it is that they are lazy writers that can't think of a way to make an established relationship just as exciting for people to enjoy. This is why we get so few central characters in happy, established relationships, and why Frank and Annie stand out to the audience. This is also why I will always be salty about what Marvel did to Peter Parker and Mary Jane in One More Day. But now I feel myself going on a tangent, so let me reel it back in to discuss not just Harry and Abigail, but also Rebecca and James. One of the ways stories throw complications into UST is to have your pair end up with other people. Often, these other people are little more than extras that will show up for a handful of episodes before the relationships fail, due to the fact that protagonist and deuteragonist really love each other. Sometimes, one of the pair will literally invite the attention of someone else, 
usually for fairly immature reasons like jealousy, and that will sometimes cause the other member of the pair to likewise find a hookup in retaliation. In the case of Steamheart, what is typical is utterly thrown out the window. Rebecca and Harry are not glorified extras. They are protagonists who we also want to see happy. Both of them approach the one they are interested in for legitimate personal motivations that have been spelled out, either in the book itself or as a result of a previous one. To use a term mentioned earlier, they have desires and are acting on those desires. And because both of their trysts are initiated by someone else, it makes us feel less irritated by James and Abigail. Especially Abigail, since she's the one that was most recently acting out. It would be very easy, seeing James and knowing that he had been intimate with Rebecca, for her to feel like Harry is an opportunity to get back at him. In fact, this is exactly what Annie will accuse her of next chapter. But that's not how it feels in the moment, and we'll get more into how it plays out in our next few episodes. Because we are seeing into Harry's head, we know exactly why she does what she does. And even if her choice might feel like a mistake, it's an earnest mistake that most people can empathize with. Abigail didn't force her into anything. She was just receptive to what Harry already wanted, and caused her to assess how she herself felt about Harry. She has always been the one most interested in Abby in that way. Abigail has liked Harry and been intrigued by her, but we never really saw that there was necessarily a fire in Abigail for Harry, except for potentially that one moment during the mushroom encounter. I was going to say. Where she was just sort of wanting to be friendly with everybody. Mm. But then again... There was something that got interrupted that we yep. we won't necessarily know what was going on in her head in terms of what she actually wanted to do while her inhibitions were completely down. I expect that uh, had that been allowed to play out, it probably would have been something like, you're high, you're sexy. <laughs> <laughs> but we may never know. Yeah. So when I say that this moment feels okay... I am trying to express the idea that while I acknowledge there may be some fallout from this tryst, it feels genuine and beautiful. I have confidence in the motivations of those involved, that they are the right amount of selfish without going overboard. The mm. thing is, is that even though we want to encourage Harry the freedom to figure out this part of herself, the moment is carried away by her need and mm. lubed more than a little by her inexperience hey, with alcohol. Phrasing. Yeah, okay, you're right. <laughs> the question I posed to you when I was writing out this outline was, much as we like seeing Harry and Abby together, keeping in mind that I'm not revealing what happens in the next chapter at this point, mm -hmm. we'll talk about that when it happens, was this tryst really a good idea, or should Abigail have been more adult and realized that she was allowing her turbulent emotions and her inebriated state to sway her into an encounter 
that should have not been entered into so lightly. I'm tempted to let my foreknowledge of what becomes of this encounter colour my judgement on the circumstances of it occurring. Suffice to say, I can't say, but I really want to. (laughs) I think, nevertheless, that this is probably something that needed to happen, at least for Harry, in the same way that I was mentioning earlier, James and Rebecca, what they have is something that felt right for them in that Mm -hmm. moment. I think this feels right, at the very least, for Harry. Mm -hmm. We've seen her confide in Tabitha about her sexuality and attraction to Abigail, and while that is gratification in that it confirms that her feelings and disposition are not isolated to just her, I think she deserves to explore romantic and sexual attraction and learn that this was something that Harry could do. And of course, there's the second reason why I brought up UST earlier. Harry had it too, and at least had the bravery to act on her feelings. Now the story can address whether or not this is a relationship that can or will last. Of course, Harry has gone through a lot already in the journey so far with the loss of her parents and everything that like the rest of the team are going through Mm -hmm. you can debate whether this is the right step for her or not or if abigail is being irresponsible and responding affirmatively to it but taking the perspective of harry i think it is important that she actively initiates it as Mm -hmm. you say more than that i think it's important that we don't put all of the decision making of the situation in abigail's court like that It only comes down to her. As we see Harry show enough awareness to consider that she might have chosen the wrong time to act on this. We were discussing how everyone is looking in on Abigail and trying to assess like what she's feeling and trying to decide how to respond to it. This is Harry's turn. She sees Abigail recognise what is going on between Rebecca and James I take her hand and lead her into the bedroom, lighting the candles in there. Her face is blank, but I can tell she's angry over James doing things with with this new agent lady. Abigail must have felt like he was hers. She wanted him all to herself in the same way that I kind Mm. of wanted her all to myself so she's not just kind of oblivious to that she is yeah, she, she's ab- showing a surprising amount of emotional intelligence that's why this is important because we shouldn't think that she's incapable of this we should show that she's not completely unequipped to interact with and mm. have some active agency in this she is emotionally judging and assessing the situation even if she is reaching conclusions that she might not if she were more removed from it and able to act without the sort of as you say lubricated by the alcohol but also just like the emotional like oh my god she's right there i just really want to kiss her and Mm -hmm. maybe more but in a strange way seeing her show awareness that this might not be the best time for her to act given what she can pick up on regarding abigail's emotional investment in james just as we consider what similar thoughts might be going through abigail's head as she decides whether or not to reciprocate and pursue this 
it makes it feel more on equal terms. Like they both know it's perhaps not ideal circumstances or the best idea in the world to do this right now, but they both feel an impulse in themselves, recognize it in the other and follow that. So to answer your question, I think even at the time first listening, I did question the long-term feasibility of this working out, but I stand by the conclusion that this was right for both of them in that moment. Sometimes, even if you know something might not work out, it's still in your best interest to tackle it regardless. The thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. As if you need to know this side of yourself and who it might help you to become. That word that you like brought into the conversation, which I keep coming back to, is discovery. It was important that they discover this together. After the time that Harry's had these last few months, I think she deserves to know that she can find and make new forms of love and connections, even as the world takes away two of her most precious ones. I pretty much agree with everything that you just said, but on top of that, I didn't necessarily have a strong opinion one way or another. It just came to me as like something that should be discussed. Mm. And the conclusion that I come to at the end of all of this is that in order for Harry to be a true protagonist, she needs to be able to both act selflessly and act selfishly. Yes, that's otherwise, precisely it. Otherwise, she is object rather than subject. Precisely. Her journey in this is very much about this person who has lived in a very, partly through the way her mind works, but also just because of what Thomas and Sarah built around her. She's lived in her workshop. And so the journey of this is her exposing herself to all that's out there. So we've seen her contend with grief and we're seeing her now contend with emotional connection, like new forms of connection and love, unlike anything she's experienced before. And it's alarming and uncertain, but it's thrilling and stimulating like that i can think of no other words so like sometimes you just got to be like it's got all this emotional attachment to it also to put this on the quote of the episode sex feels good it's nice that's why they like it sexual release feels great floods of oxytocin mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sometimes you just gotta bang it out yep just gotta <laughs> bang it out pounding it Pounding it. <laughs> I'm looking disapprovingly at Greg, but also with utmost pride. I learned it from watching you! <laughs> what, pounding it? <laughs> okay, moving swiftly along here. Moving swiftly along. Finally, we have James and Rebecca. And while this potential tryst could not have been foreshadowed, because Rebecca, as mentioned earlier, comes out of nowhere... It's easy to see why the two of them have a rapport. They are not of a similar neurodivergence like Harry and James, but they do have a temperament that leads to an ease in their discourse. Above and beyond all of the discussion we had where, in this moment, Rebecca seems to come across as the triune goddess, confident and still and wise and making... James feels seen. She is also a stark opposite to Abigail, a calm pond in comparison to her fire. 
James is able to talk with Rebecca without worrying that what he might say might somehow cause offense. She just seems capable of accepting everything that he has to offer. She has experience. She's measured in what she says and how she says it. She's less disrupting to James's sensibilities. And as mentioned earlier, she does not have the complicated history that made James and Abby so difficult to come to terms. Mm. When Rebecca so calmly invites him to her bed like it ain't no thing, how could James not be drawn in by that on top of everything else? We talked about the dance present in chapter 10, and their interaction brings to mind the idea of a symbolic dance going on between the two of them that could really only culminate in one thing. As an aside, before going into my notes in response to that, something you said there really did make me realize while in the moment you can see some of the sort of like reasons why you might ship James mm. and Harry before her sexuality comes to light and why characters within the story seem to sort of mm. suppose that's where her inclinations are. You do sort of see that they admire one another, they like each other, they get on well. So you're like, oh yeah, they, they're pretty good. And you have this impulse, which I think has this implication to it, which I'm actually, in retrospect, glad that we sidestep, mm -hmm. which is that, oh, they should go together, because it's like with like. And it's mm -hmm. sort of like, hang on a minute. They are both much more than just their neurodivergence, as we have repeatedly mm -hmm. reinforced and emphasized but i'm glad that as you say we are seeing that rebecca and james are not on the spectrum sort of like mm -hmm. in line with one another and neither is harry with abigail and it is very nice to just see that these characters don't have to compromise in any way in the life experiences that they're able to have and the fact that for both of them, it is their first time, they're not shown to have a sort of panic attack over it or anything mm -hmm. like that. They're able to experience it for all the sort of ups, downs, left, right, in, out, all of that. It is what it is, it, the same as for anybody else. And I think that's great that we have that. Honestly, the older I get and the more conversations we have about neurodiversity the clearer it seems to me how much the idea of a normal brain is a ridiculous idea. There's definitely a social and cultural conformity that is expected of people, and as a result of that, a lot of people that are probably somewhere on the spectrum have gotten very good at coping or masking to the point of high functionality. They don't even realize that under different circumstances, they might have been diagnosed and gotten better help through medication or counseling. I count myself among those, because the more I hear about the symptoms of ADHD and other neurodivergent modalities, the more I see things I struggled with both when I was younger and now. And yet, just like Harry and James, I'm perfectly capable of having relationships. It just requires communication, and the willingness to let people be who they are without trying to make them into something more palatable for social consumption. Harry and James may stand out more, 
but we are all different in sometimes invisible ways, and it should be okay to be different. As a side note, in case I haven't mentioned it recently, everyone should check out the visual novel Arcade Spirits, The New Challengers, which has a wide variety of characters on many spectrums to explore relationships and even romances with. Now, back to our conversation. To codify something you were alluding to a moment ago, like can attract like, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a good pairing. Mm. Opposites can also attract, but that Mm. also doesn't mean that they're a good pairing. It goes both ways. James Mm. and Rebecca are attracted to each other because they are like each other in some ways. Mm. And James and Abigail are attracted to each other because they Mm. are unlike each other. But those same Sparks... Sparks? Yes. How you doing today, Sparks? The conflict is also part of what can repulse them from each other. And in the Mm. meantime, Harry and Abigail are also different. But Harry is also drawn, in this case, much like James is, to the thing that is different from her. But there isn't a similar repulsion effect here. There's no set way. Sometimes certain pairings work, and sometimes they don't. And Mm. you have to take into account all the different pieces of context before figuring out whether it's going to work or not, rather than Mm. some conventional wisdom saying that only two people that are like each other will make a good pairing, or two people that are unlike each other will make a good pairing. Sure. To get back to the specifics of James with Rebecca... I do think that Rebecca, who we know exactly why she is an attractive personality through her strength and qualities that we've got to know and can see has only grown in the intervening years, even as a new sadness has built itself up alongside those strengths. We can see why it's particularly attractive after James has grown frustrated with Abigail's unpredictable temperament, at least to him. From his perspective, he both understands Abigail's irritation with this place and with him, but also can't help but feel indignant that she puts him in positions where he can't know the correct response. Rebecca, conversely, operates on a wavelength that he is able to engage with without concern of misstep. Heck, even when they're doing it, she offers guidance, and I can see James sincerely appreciating that kind of supportive interaction with no expectations. So Rebecca was giving James the blueprints too. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually exactly how it is. That is exactly how it is. Is that going to be a new euphemism for sex now? Hey, want to see my blueprints? (laughs) (laughs) It's a new version of, do you want to come and read some of my poetry? (laughs) Hey, Netflix and chill. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> blueprints and chill um, do you want a cup of coffee and if they go uh, yeah okay then sex is on yeah? so when all the years of complication with Abigail have gotten in the way time after time as demonstrated by that evening with the mushrooms it makes all the sense in the world that when someone comes along who forms a connection with him quickly decisively yet gently then there is nothing left to do than to pursue that with complete clarity. Even as James's response is completely understandable, 
because we have seen in real time all of the tension that he's had to deal with with regards to not just Abigail, but his place in the world, his frustration with the endowment, coming across someone that completely accepts him for all that he is, is exactly what he needs to a certain extent. Rebecca's motivations are more opaque. I alluded to her as being a representation of the goddess multiple times now, but that doesn't take into account that she isn't a goddess, she is just a person. Mm. There is now all this empty space, which we are not privy to, in regards to what happened in those intervening years. When she Mm. lays it all out in between their shared intimacies, it makes a certain sense. We know her great loss and the mindset that led to it. She led her actions with her head before, using practical logic to avoid loss of agency in spite of her feelings. Now, just like Tabitha, when the modalities and social constructions that might hamper her are gone, and she can choose her own way, she realizes she has the freedom to go with the instinct inside her, rather than purely letting practicality rule the day. And in this way, perhaps trying to analyze why she chose to go to bed with James is foolish. Mm. After all she's been through, after all we've been through, seeing her despair, she deserves a moment of happiness. Mm. And certainly the right to choose. She chose him, and in spite of whatever drama might happen next, for the moment, you're glad of it. I spoke earlier about how, for Rebecca, it makes all the sense in the world that after losing that connection and what could have been with Rafe, when another connection comes along, she essentially says never again. Mm -hmm. I think that what she sees and finds in James that is attractive is probably very similar to what he sees and finds attractive in her. They were both missing a stillness, a calmness, with the uncertainty of how the world is, that someone else who is able to see things with this clarity that they are discussing through conversation. As you said earlier, the final destination of this dance of going to bed together feels like the only conclusion it could be because the soft tenderness of the conversation in both the sort of actions of just seeing the starlit eye talking through in the dialogue and in Alex and Sharon's performances, it's all intimate stuff. Mm -hmm. Like they've already been very open and vulnerable with one another and seeing and accepting each other for exactly what they are and nothing else, even before they go to bed with one another. That's why it's no thing, because they've laid bare all of themselves already. They've done something which is probably much more like a difficult thing to confide in someone, and they've managed to get there already. In this way, their lovemaking feels a fait accompli, a conclusion already decided on, even before Rebecca speaks it into existence. Her experience with James may be that for her, something was awoken that she didn't necessarily think that she would feel again. 
a sense of wonder, mm. perhaps. Him accepting her with a casualness where she could be as vulnerable as she was rather than playing Sarah Arlington's sword, mm. as, as, as is alluded to, that she has been an agent for the cartographers for some time. She desires the ability to just be a person again, and James seems to offer her the freedom to be able to do so. Yes, as an aside, it's remarkable that they sell the connection that Sarah and Rebecca had as we say, completely unseen character in the setting of the reunified states, that she comes in and says, Oh, I was her favourite, darling. The weight of the delivery of that just says everything. All the grief that she is feeling, because she is grieving too, that like mm. this was a connection she had. So like Harry, like everyone... Everyone has experienced grief. It's a cliche, but it's also a very true observation of life that sometimes, like, taking hold of life in some way is the response to grief. And sometimes that means just grabbing hold of someone next to you. Not the last time that's going to happen in a new century novel. When you are trying to fight back against the sadness... The mm. impulse to create something beautiful is very yeah. understandable. And whatever destination these respective pairings end up at, they all sort of feel as if, like, this was not just, oh, you're here, want to hook up or something mm -hmm. like that. There's a sense of there being something more to both of these encounters. Sometimes you sort Discovery. of have to... Discovery, it comes back to yeah. Discovery, yeah. It, that sometimes you sort of have to like quit looking at the sort of beyond and focus on the moment, which mm. I think is a very big part of the little death, so to speak, is that it's just everything collapsing in on just one thing that for the stretch of time you are experiencing it means the world. See, now I feel bad because I've already used the song that would go perfectly with this. Dis discussing this whole thing brings to mind the lyrics of the KT Tunstall song that I put in the outro recently. Hold on to what you've been given lately. The world will turn if you're ready or not. Mm, well. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's okay. Editor Greg to figure out. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Editor Greg will come up with something else then. Mm. It's fine. Putting these things together is as much art as it is science so you're thinking of baking <laughs> gee i wonder why <laughs> good night everybody yeah exactly i got i got nothing else we'll see you next time on another trip through the wind door take care that brings us to the end of our discussion on the first three chapters of part three tune in in a week and change for stories of cooking confrontations, and communication, as well as finally introducing Team Steam to a boy and his tiger mom. When thinking about how to end this discussion of sexual intimacy, I wanted to pick a song with both lyrics and a musical sound that spoke to the moment. It was only through revisiting old tracks from an album I had picked up in the 2000s that I found something right. 
it may seem like a love song expressing how the singer has found exactly who they need for the rest of their life, but Toby has already alluded to the fact that the future is promised to no one, and these relationships may not last. That said, the tone of chapter 23 suggests that our heroes have found exactly who they need now, in this time and place, and our discussions on the following chapter will reinforce this idea. So until next time, this is Lifehouse with Everything. I want to feel you
Could you tell me how could it?